Hello, and welcome to Stories from the Workshop. What you just heard was the start of the Iron Dog Race, a 1,200-mile, six-day snow machine race across the wilderness of Alaska. I'm your host, Meredith Luff. I co-founded Anvil, the platform for building full-stack web apps with nothing but Python, and that means I meet a lot of interesting people who use it. Today's subject is about as far as you can get from my cosy keyboard. I'm talking to John Woodbury, Executive Director, and Bryce Wilbanks, the tech lead, for the longest, toughest snowmobile race in the world. So what exactly is the Iron Dog Race? Well, it's, uh, it's in its 37th year, and it's a, a snow machine race that goes about, this year we went about 2,400 miles across uh, the, some of the roughest terrain in Alaska. Uh, we started in Fairbanks, we go down the Yukon River, uh, we head up to Kotzebue, go to the old gold town of Nome, uh, and then we turn around and head south again for another 11, 1,200 miles, and we wind up uh, near Anchorage in a town called Big Lake. And the uh, snow machiners, they do that in like 35, 36 hours to cover the 2,400 miles. And if we didn't force them to make checkpoint stops and rest breaks, they would do it in just a couple days. Uh, but we take about six days to go across Alaska. That is 35 hours for 2,400 miles. That is averaging like highway speeds yeah. across Alaskan tundra? Nah, well, there's tundra, there's open water, there's, you know, sometimes we have to skip across the open Bering Sea out there and uh, mountain passes, dirt. One year we had about 30 miles of dirt, which snow machines don't handle very well, so... Uh, pretty much any terrain, and they'll do it. So yeah, speeds over a hundred miles an hour. You know, right wow. down to going backwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I mean, uh, that is incredible. I think for those of us who don't recognize that sequence of place names, we're definitely going to have in the show notes a map of just how much of this enormous uh, territory uh, these competitors cover. So what's the structure? You said that if you didn't make them stop to do checkpoints they would probably do it all in one like how is the race structured what are the rules like do they all just start off in one pack mm. and you say you know see you at the other end how does it work oh we uh we try to i mean our rules are all based on safety so mm -hmm. uh, that's what really drives this race uh so we start them in two or four minute intervals uh we had about 60 racers teams of two uh head out this year plus we had another 15 or so trail class riders uh but no they leave uh, this year was uh in intermittent intervals of four minutes and then uh, that interval gets eaten up pretty quick you know you have a slower team in front of you and pretty soon you know going 100 miles an hour you're going to pass the team quickly but uh they stay pretty bunched up all the way to Nome, which is the halfway point you know uh about 1,100 miles or so, 1,200 miles. Um, and then we restart them again heading south on a similar interval. We send them out on race time, and then we kind of tighten them up to keep it interesting. Uh, so everybody does a daylight finish back in south-central Alaska. And what about these stops? So you so you, you stop them. That sounds like an overnight stop, stop in Nome. Uh, what about these other checkpoints? Uh, yeah, it's certainly... Uh, it's about... 40 hours in Nome where they can fly in parts, they can rebuild their machines, they kind of get a reset in Nome. The other checkpoints, uh, they have their options anywhere from a six-hour layover 
to uh, traditionally it's a 10 or 12 hour layover. During that time, they can work on their machines, but it's going to be on the clock. Uh, but really, they just shut down. They need a mental break. They need a physical break. They need to hydrate and get food. Um, and those are at various communities. We have an amazing relationship with the rural communities in Alaska, and they just kind of become the adopted families of these racers. So it, it's one of the high points of the race, really. So you say when they, if they're working on the machines, they're on the clock. So I guess part of the challenge here is that you've got to keep these snow machines running over this ridiculous terrain, over dirt, which you say they don't like very much. Like, is 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 the maintenance part of the challenge then? Well, you know, the race is won or lost with the wrench. It's not with the throttle. A lot of people actually pass each other in the Gnome garage. We have uh, the race marshals, and they time the people how long they spend on working on their machines. And if one team takes 10 minutes and they're eight minutes behind, you know, now their their time is accumulated for behind. But another team who's an hour behind but doesn't have any wrench time can actually move up the standings in the garage. Um, so, yeah, it's a huge strategy. I mean, riding clean is so important. It's not the fastest team that wins. It's the smartest team that wins, you know. That's like... That's incredible. So it's a strategic game. It's like an engineering smarts game. It's going to be, I mean, there's got to be toughness in the requirements if you're traveling over that kind of terrain. Oh, yes. So this is a race. It is a sporting event for the competitors, but it's an entertainment event for all the spectators, obviously. Like, Mm -hmm. if you are spectating the Iron Dog race, how do you do it? I mean, presumably most of your audience isn't going to actually be, you know, watching these snow machiners go by. It's uh, So my background is journalism. And for years, since the beginning of the race in 84, when it first started, I've tried to cover it. Uh, you know, technology has really picked up and, and enabled us to do a pretty good job. I think there's a lot of room that where we can improve. But uh yeah, so crowds, there's crowds at the start, there's crowds at the finish, there's crowds at Nome where people actually come out. The checkpoints, you know, all the schools let out, all the kids are there. They're kind of like rock stars when they come through town. But uh, it is problematic. As a journalist trying to cover this race for decades prior, it is problematic. The technology didn't really exist in rural Alaska. And, you know, there was a point where I was flying film out to get it developed so it would be in the next day's paper and, you know, uh, but that's where Bryce came in. I mean, this year, I think we had, uh, you know, despite a number of other obstacles that didn't involve technology, uh, I thought we had a pretty effective web of coverage uh, through not only Bryce's works on the website, and uh, but we also had uh, partners with another group, uh, the South High Media Team, and they did live streaming. Of course, social media is always worth a laugh or two, but I don't <laughs> take it serious, but it is kind of an accentuating medium to uh, use uh, for coverage. So how do you get this coverage? I mean, given that these competitors are traveling over 100 miles an hour over this terrain, right? You're not The camera crew is just physically not going to be able to keep up with them. Right. So is the, is, does the coverage happen at the waypoint as they come through these communities? Like, how does it work? So, you know, we have live stream setups at the start and at the halfway setup in Nome and then at the finish, kind of the big events, you know, where people are going to really tune into. 
we do have some pilots flying with like GoPros on their wings and stuff. So that helps a little bit on supplemental coverage, but yeah, some of the snow machines go faster than some of the planes. So that only works for a little while. Oh, that's insane. Oh, it's, it's crazy. We've empowered and really kind of partnered with our rural neighbors and they, you know, through the gift of social media and technology, they really have become de facto journalists because they stay up at 2 a.m. when the racers come in, you know, and they're taking these little Facebook live videos or they're sending us, emailing us videos or photos. Um, they do a, just a great job. I mean, it's a full spectrum. Some of it is like Bigfoot sighting video. It's a little jerky <laughs> and barely usable, but uh, but really it captures the flavor of the race in the checkpoints. So uh, they're they're a key component, the people in the towns. So, and how does like the, the rules enforcement and judging work, you know, who is there sort of with the stopwatch, making sure that, you know, timing them when they come in, making sure they don't touch their machines while they're on layover. Is this also like local communities? Are there judges that travel around? Yeah, we have three race marshals. And then uh, I have 13 board members, very active, very involved. Um, and all 13, I think 12 of the board members were out in the communities kind of helping out, um, taking a very secondary role, but uh, kind of being the official observer for Iron Dog. But really, again, we depend and cherish our relationship with the rural folks. There are there are de facto community checkpoint checkers. There are timers. There are inspectors. It's a really good setup. So as somebody who has never visited Alaska. Can you like tell me about what does one of these communities look like? How many people live there? Mm. What do they do? Is it primary industry? What are they? Tell me about them. So, I mean, to put it in perspective, I think the race goes from like uh, Phoenix, Arizona to New York is about the length of the race. Um, but Okay, the- so I-, I just asked you to generalize wildly. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, the communities, I mean, in some of the communities, you know, one of the communities is Fairbanks. That's the second largest city in Alaska, which, you know, is still just a population of around 30,000 people. But, you know, it's full on city. Um, you know, we have a couple checkpoints that are really just express checkpoints. There's population zero. You know, the, the racers have to pump their own fuel. You know, we have to fly in fuel or we barge in fuel the summer before. Um, but you know, for example, one of our checkpoints is Galena. We had one of our board members there. I think the population is maybe 800 people, but it's just an amazing town. I mean, the racers, the biggest risk for a racer in Galena is gaining too much weight because all of the little lovely old ladies in the town bring out potlatch, you know, big, <laughs> big plates of food. Uh, you know, they do, Iron Dog becomes a bit of a carnival there. They do little kids races and we did a helmet giveaway for the safe, you know, for the kids to keep those fellas safe, our up and coming crop of Iron Dog racers safe. And so when you say kids races, what are we talking about? How old? Yeah, okay. So these are kids probably, uh, you know, 10 years old and under, and they have little snow machines, like little 120cc miniature snow machines, and they're going around an oval and taking little jumps and stuff. And you know, they're wow. racing for trophies. We spiffed them some trophies. And yeah, yeah, you got to kind of, you know, grow your own racers up here. So, and the rural communities are a rich, rich well to dig from. So, well, I guess if you live in a population 800 community, 
in rural Alaska, like snow machine skills are probably an important part of life. Uh, more important than learning how to drive a truck, that's for sure. I just was going to say, I think an important note for this is the whole thing that most of these communities out in rural Alaska, you cannot drive to or anything. You have to fly there. And then when you are there, you don't have, generally, you won't have vehicles, right? <laughs> you just have snow machines to get around yep. villages in the middle of winter. Yeah. So it's a way of life. And yes, the best riders I've seen have been, you know, 10 years old, <laughs> which is wild to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's um, pretty humbling. And when you say you have to fly out, I'm guessing you don't mean like large paved runways. I'm guessing you mean bush pilots. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so you mentioned like barging in fuel the summer before which kind of implies that once it gets close to the race, which happens in what, February? Yep, mid-February. You're not going to be able to get a barge into or out of these places. Tell me about the weather. Like, the Alaskan winter is a character in this drama. Absolutely. It was a, it was one of the main players in this drama this year. I mean, it always is, because you never know what you're going to get. But, but yeah, the rivers freeze up, so there's a very finite amount of time where you can do your logistical planning in the summer. This year, I mean, when we were starting, setting up the couple days before the race started, it was minus 36 in Fairbanks, and it had been that way for a couple weeks, and I don't know how people live in that. That's just too damn cold, but uh, but that wasn't the cold part. I mean, we go through McGrath, and it was minus 57, and the racers are rolling in at those temperatures, uh, so temperature's really brutal. The other major player this year was snow. We had, like, 11 feet of snowfall near Ophir and Poor Man, which is our most remote uh, section of trail. And we couldn't get the racers through there. So as they're heading toward that area, they're like 350 miles away. We're hiring locals to break the trail through. It took them three days, a group of five or six guys to break about 250 miles worth of trail. But uh, they did it. And I mean, how do you even do that? Because you can't get a snowplow in there if you could only snowmobile or bush or bush fly in and out. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a snow machine and tenacity. And those guys, they have more tenacity than <laughs> than wits, I guess. No, they're amazing people. It's just they just they just don't stop. You know, they. Uh, but that's that's their Tuesday. That's the catch is that's their Tuesday. If they want to go have Thanksgiving or go to the basketball game in the next village, that's what they do. That is incredible. Bit of background for those, uh, for listeners on my side of the pond. I looked up the conversion for minus 36 Fahrenheit. Turns out that's the point where Fahrenheit and Celsius meet. It's about minus 38 Celsius. And that coldest point was about minus 50 Celsius, which is like, that is a number that I find difficult to contemplate. <laughs> how cold it yeah, is. Yeah, uh, yeah. So when you say, when you say ten feet of snow, I mean, like they are snow machines. It's in the name. Is it just that because it's also fresh and loose, they can't just go over the top of it? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the personality of snow. Ten feet of snow isn't really a problem if it's very consolidated, but because it was, you know, minus thirty Fahrenheit, minus fifty. Because it was so cold, it remains sugary. It doesn't consolidate. So when you step onto that snow, you'll sink. You will literally sink in the snow until you hit the ground. It's it's really difficult. You know, it's just the personality of this year. Um, you know, if it would have rained or if it would have 
had a windstorm. It would have consolidated wow. the snow, but there was just no base to it, so you couldn't go anywhere. Yeah, so we had like a six foot six checker, and he jumped off the snow machine, and he disappeared. <laughs> he, we went in over his head. So uh, yeah, it was pretty pretty difficult part of the trail there. That is wow, that's incredible. And then the other part of it was, you know, in addition to the temperature and the personality of the snow. Our other big factor this year were moose. We had just scores of moose on the trail. Between one section of trail, about there's about 40, 50 miles between McGrath and Nikolai, and uh, there were 22 moose on the trail. And because it's such a high snow year, the moose will not get off the trail because then they'll get stuck in the snow and they'll get attacked by wolves and die. So we had a significant amount of moose and snow machine encounters. One of our checkers, his sled got kicked over and, you know, he had to hop on his back of his wife's sled and they roared out of there. And so that's the other part this year when the snow is deep, the moose won't get off the trail. And uh, that was pretty dangerous. Yeah. Moose are, that's not an animal to be messed with, is it? That's not an animal. It's like an angry horse with horns. (laughs) (laughs) So, when if someone gets into trouble with a moose or ten foot of snow that will swallow you if you step off your your snow machine, like what do you do? You're in the middle of nowhere between these checkpoints. Do they have any contact with the outside world? Do they have GPS tracking? Do they have? I mean, I assume no mobile signal. Uh, very rarely will you get a mobile cell phone signal, but they carry sat phones or in-reach safety products. What is an in-reach safety product? Uh, well, it's like a sat phone or a very simplified sat phone where they can send a text message like, I need rescue, and then we'll start to scramble a rescue. But um, but yeah, one of the key safety components is a GPS tracker on every sled. Um, and we use a component on the website that Bryce is meshed in to mm-hmm. do a tracking. So even in the comforts of your own living room, you can kind of experience a the race vicariously by watching the GPS ping about every two minutes. But if someone gets in trouble, as remote as some of the trails, you know, sections are, somebody from the community is going to help. That's just how Alaskans are, specifically rural Alaskans. They will not let you be alone out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have a cadre of volunteers that also happen to be pilots. They're not associated with Iron Dog, but you know, they've got friends in the race and they'll do everything they can from dropping parts out of the plane or supplies. Um, and then if it really gets into a sticky situation, we our partners. One of our sponsors is an organization called Life Med and they have helicopters and they can do medical evacuations in the middle of just about anywhere in Alaska. So we had to do that last year with a pretty severe injury with a broken leg and the injured back and um, we had four medevacs out of this race this year, unfortunately. They're all doing okay. No, nobody's, no deaths in Iron Dog. Want to keep that oh, streak shit. alive? Yep. Uh, but, you know, you go 100 miles an hour on a trail that's four foot wide over six, seven days, you're going to have an issue somewhere. Everybody's going to have an issue. So. Wow. I mean, Alaskans must be made of pretty hardy stock. <laughs> Uh, to do oh, that yeah. for leisure activities. <laughs> we might have put all of our energy into muscles and didn't save much for brains. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, 
That does not seem representative of my interactions with you guys so far. <laughs> no, we like our fun. So, uh, when things aren't going wrong, and when people are rocketing across uh, rural Alaska at over 100 miles an hour, how do the spectators follow along? So they are following social media, the competitors have a, a GPS trace, it's presumably being sent by sat phone, and this is all displayed so that competitors can follow along and track these races. Do you want to talk a bit about like how that's accomplished? Well, in my wheelhouse, I consider that sorcery. That's why I hire experts like Bryce. <laughs> oh, well, this is, and this is why we've got Bryce here. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> no, I, I like to consider myself, you know, the, the builder of the house. I build the house and then I have, you know, people like John come in and interior design and add in the stuff to make it look pretty on the inside. So he adds in all the posts and we have other people in the race, of course, that come in and uh, add information about what's going on. But what's cool this year is we completely redesigned the whole thing. So from the ground up, we integrated all of the sources of information that we've been missing before. So the live streams from YouTube and uh, South Anchorage Media's crew, the GPS tracking and news from our individual uh, sources who are writing content for us on the website. And we consolidated that all into one section of the website. So now people can easily go to the Iron Dog website and follow along in the race with social media posts, images up to the minute, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook on all the social media. And, and then when they're ready, they can also enter the race tracking app and they can see exactly, you know, when the last racer checked in, what the weather was at that location that they just checked in at, and they can see exactly where they're at on the GPS map. So there's so many ways for the audience to interact with Iron Dog. That seems like the a solution to a a really big challenge for that kind of coverage. Uh, we are talking, obviously, because you used Anvil to build part of this infrastructure. Do you want to talk about like the technical story for how this comes through? We've already heard a bit about the satellite-connected GPS mm -hmm. trackers on the competitors. Like, How do you get from there to a unified feed that your audience can track to see the whole race? Um, there's two sections to this, and John will be able to elaborate a bit more on how race tracking specifically works. Because, you know, on my end, of course, being the uh, web developer of it, I see the API feed. <laughs> I'm very keen on that. So, right, I see that part of it. And uh, so, you know, I, I was, of course, working with the official timekeeper of the race to, of course, ensure that information was flowing through and all integrated properly. And so how that works is there's two sections to it. Um, first of it is going to be your GPS tracking, which is your uh, spot devices and your in-reach devices, which send a GPS signal you know, every few minutes or so. And then the second part of that is the actual manual input at the time and the race time correction. You know, since we have layovers, that gets corrected in course time, correct? Yep. Yep. We readjust the times at certain uh, checkpoints and that way everybody's on the actual race time. So what do you mean by readjusting? Is that just like when someone comes in and someone from that uh, from that rural community says they came at, came in at precisely this time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have. And what what adjustment needs to be made? To that? Well, we get rid of the intervals at the start, so everybody kind of goes on the actual course time. Um, I got it. We also have like sponsors who offer up, you know, one of the prizes is like two thousand dollars goes to the team who sacrificed their race, but to help someone in need, you know, that basically saved a life last year. And so, uh, yeah, one of the sponsors, ACS, they offer up a little prize there, but 
on the back end of that because they stopped and gave assistance for an hour, hour and a half. The timers and race marshals allowed that hour and a half not to be a penalty on their time. They gave that back. So certain adjustments like that happen. So. And but that presumably all happens manually by mm-hmm. people like observing snow machines yeah. crossing finish lines uh, or timing lines. So uh, that gets manually inputted, and that presumably gets what phoned in, texted in from these rural communities. That's correct. Yep. There's a little network, little phone tree that we have, and we got volunteers that stay up all night, bless their hearts, and uh, they type it in and make a hard adjustment to the timing. So then, what happens then? Yeah, so that that time when they punch in that information instantly transfers over to, you know, Anvil and the app that's built for race tracking. It's pulled via the API that we have set up for them. And uh, essentially what happens is the timekeeping, it shows up on the race tracking app for viewers to see, you know, what adjustments were made, you know, when a uh, team checked in, when they checked out. Um, yeah, there's a ton more information. So it's it's a great tool for data. So that information will be then ent- entered into an Anvil app to go into the the record of the race and then fed into the feed that the audience is looking at. Sort of the back end of it is actually not on Anvil. Anvil's specifically used right now for the front end user experience. Mm-hmm. So users will go and take a look or the audience will go ahead and uh, visit the Anvil app to see exactly what is going on in the race. But we don't input information into Anvil. Uh, Anvil, we, we currently use the. Uh, so 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 what do you what do you use? Like what is there like a, a separate time management system? Yeah, a few years back, um, I want to say it was almost ten years ago, John. Yeah. Ish. This yeah. is before either of us were around. Um, there's a tool set up for race tracking, and um, we kept the same tool because it works well. It provides an API feed. And what we were able to do then is cut down on development time by using the tool that already exists. We didn't need to reinvent the wheel because the fact is that the tool did a great because job. Because you could just grab the API feed. Exactly. The tool yeah. did a great job. All of the uh, timekeepers already knew how to use the tool. So, of course, you know, once again, why reinvent the wheel? So we have a, we have a combination of data sources. We have the GPS tracking um, that's coming in via presumably its own API. Yeah. Uh, we have the uh, tracking stuff from the uh, marshals and the timekeepers that and the adjustments that get entered in manually. Uh, any other data sources, or is that that the main thing for race progress? For race progress, that's like the main important sections for the specific data end of it. But I think a large chunk and part of the kind of web redesign that we did this year is also content based. You know, we had a. Uh, uh, some great writers behind the scenes working for us that wrote content multiple times a day to post on the website. And that allowed, you know, that connection for John's old role as a journalist to see exactly what's going on in the iron dog, you know, as quick as possible. And at least from my opinion, I don't think we had that at all last year or the years before we didn't have that much, I guess, uh, integration with it. And that tying in with the live feeds on the whole website, as well as the data, there were so many ways for the audience members to watch Iron Dog this year and so much content that wasn't just, that was both data and um, reading and photos and everything that it really made for an interactive audience experience. Yeah, you don't want to just see the times, you want to hear the story told. <laughs> exactly. 
And so we also tied in with that in the uh, race tracking app, you know, the weather and the bios, of course, of all the racers are tied in like they, they were before. But we added weather this year to where you can see exactly what's going on in these checkpoints using the uh, Dark Sky API as well. Awesome. And so how was the whole the, the whole site put together then? You know, what technology, what was your technology stack then? So specifically for the front end of the website, we moved from WordPress to Squarespace recently, and that was a huge influential move because what we were able to do is allow our content creators to go in and edit their own information, edit their own content, add their own blog posts, add their own videos. And what this allowed us to do is we didn't have a funnel to where, you know, I'm the only one who knows WordPress or I'm the only one who knows Joomla, for example, and I'm sitting here punching in information. It just, we need to eliminate that whole funnel. We need to make it, you know, possible for all of our uh, content writers to actually write stuff. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just not going to sleep for six days. <laughs> that's kind of what happens. Yeah, correct. And that's not, <laughs> I mean, John's not, John already doesn't sleep for six days. <laughs> like During race time, you are up 24-7. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a bender. But what we're able to do then in this case is essentially allow all of our, you know, content creators to go ahead and publish on their own. And that made it so information was available quicker and easier for uh, the audience to see. Excellent. And then the back end, of course, tied into Anvil. And so this allowed users to, we actually embedded the Anvil app into the website. But if you are on a mobile device, of course, you had to click to another, uh, you had to open it up mm -hmm. in another screen because, you know, if you're a web developer, you know that embedding anything with a mobile device is kind of a nightmare. <laughs> it yeah. does not look good, does not work. So... That's why I think we also used Anvil for that was the responsive nature of uh, the uh, the tool that you guys have. And so which bits of the data and information and story were being carried by the Anvil app? Yeah, so specifically, uh, we had all the timekeeping information. So we're talking, uh, or at least viewers were able to see all the timekeeping information, adjusted times, course times, as well as they were able to see bio information, you know, a photo for each of uh, the racers, the prior races, um, there's a lot more information, but individual stuff about the racers, the biographies, in a way. And then on top of that, you're able to see checkpoint information. You know, what services are offered at the checkpoint? What is the um, weather at the checkpoint currently? And all that ties together to where we can see that, okay, well, here is Gnome, for example, and this racer checked in at this time. And it also was able to keep track of the um, placement. Who was in first place? Who's in second place? Who's in third place? Based on course time. Because, you know, as John mentioned with the whole intervals, it, it doesn't really matter who leaves first. It's all about, you know, who gets there quicker in the adjusted times. So we're able to, that's all tracked on the Anvil app. And then there was an embed to see the GPS tracking as well. Awesome. I'll tell me, like, what was this year's race like? Anything unusual? I mean, it doesn't sound like anything is particularly usual on this course. <laughs> what happened this year? Our problem that we had really boiled down to too much interest and we overwhelmed our site. And so those were, that was the biggest scramble for me, waking up and realizing that, you know, we're trying to fit 10 pounds of information in our five pound website. And, <laughs> you know, Bryce got up, I don't even know what time it was. I don't even know what day it was, but he got up and, and made some adjustments and, you know, we got everybody accommodated, but we had a huge, and I think you were actually on the email chain for that. <laughs> I think I was. Panicking, panic dealing with typing. that, <laughs> but it was great. So you know, I mean, that's a great problem to have because otherwise we would have been hosting crickets, and you know, yeah, what's mm -hmm. what's the purpose? So uh, we had just you know tens of thousands of hits and viewers, and it was a success from my 
my vantage point. I know there's some stuff that we have to tweak on. We do have a good list, but uh, once we render down all the crazy comments, you kind of get some really valuable, you know, meat that is left behind. And so we're going to tackle that this summer when we kind of get back together when things cool down. But uh, mm-hmm. but the race was great. The race went well. I mean, you know, we did have some injuries here and there, but those are yeah. not remarkable. They were all kind of, uh, you know, either terrain or operator influence. So, uh, so that was good. I mean, you know, everybody got their uh, prize money. We give away a hundred grand in cash plus another about 70 grand in prizes and stuff. So uh, I want to say most folks walked away happy. Some of them were frustrated, but a lot of that's just internal. It's racing, you know. That's so racing for it you. Went really, went really well. It was effectively a new event. We never started up at the place that we did. We had mm-hmm. never raced for so long. We added another 400 miles onto the course. And so for all, you know, the new website, you know, all of these variables, we kind of wrestled them to the ground and only a couple of them escaped. But uh, I'm very happy with the way the race went. And uh, we're planning right now. I'm working with the board members right now to, create a new event a new course for uh for next year's surprise price it's gonna do it all over again man <laughs> so we're you know oh, no i worries. don't know where it's at that's a board decision but it's gonna be another exciting kind of innovative year at least our website is gonna be you know a solid foundation so i take great comfort in that yeah no i'm really glad that of course things worked out you know thank you Anvil for making the development process for the back-end race tracking um, just so seamless, you know, m- much more seamless with the security features you guys have built in. It just it cut down on my development time a lot to where I was able to focus on, you know, user experience in a lot of ways, which is something that I thrive at, definitely. Well, like, it's, a, it's an entertainment event, and you want, like, spectating on it to be an enjoyable experience. I get it. Exactly. And so Anvil was able to cut down on that, you know, time specifically, getting all the APIs to pull together was already, you know, just putting a map together when I first started this project, you know, about a little, a little more than a year ago, just putting a map together of exactly, okay, where's all the data coming from? <laughs> that was a mess right there. But we got that, once I got that all figured out, you know, working with John, of course, um, you know, we were able to, I was able to go to Anvil and just start plowing away at how the uh, user experience would work and everything. All right, just as we wrap up, I like two closing questions. What's the most surprising thing you've learned in directing or managing the spectators for the Iron Dog race? What did you not expect to happen to you? I'm just truly overwhelmed by the sacrifice and the compassion and the uh, energy that our rural friends provide. We are absolutely sending a batch of racers into the wilds and they are received so warmly, you know, in all of these communities that it's humbling. I mean, it, it is kind of a, you know, a heart jerks on your heartstrings. The, the people take care of our racers and they do it out of love and they do it because they don't know anything else. I mean, they, the one standard for rural folks in Alaska is they won't turn their back on you if you need help it is so humbling so that was my big lesson i mean honestly 
you have already made me want to be in one of these tiny communities when the races come in because that sounds like an energy you want to be part of. We have a complimentary entry fee for you, sir. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'll echo off of what John said in a lot of ways, which is, you know, Alaska is such a unique place. It truly is. And the community we have up here is so kind and so welcoming. And, you know, having a huge snow machine race that, you know, hundreds of thousands are watching roll through your small, you know, village and for them to go out and just take care of these racers, you know, just because, you know, as you mentioned, just because they love, you know, they love each other. It's just absolutely, it's amazing to see. I can't really say that there's been much stuff surprising on the web end, so <laughs> just uh, leave it to. Good, let's keep it that way. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep it that way. <laughs> like, how many of those hundreds of thousands of spectators are in Alaska, and for how many of them is this their window into this awesome culture you're describing? About half of our audience is from Alaska, and the other half is from around the world and around the United States. So, you know, we're talking Oregon, Washington, you know, Minnesota, California, all of these, you know, great other states that people are tuning in and watching the Iron Dog. That is awesome. Maybe John can echo off of, you know, what he's seen on his executive director front. All I see is, you know, numbers from the website and whatnot <laughs> and social medias. And it's it's pretty remarkable. The reach, you know, that the the site has afforded us. I mean, it, I view that as, you know, we're prospecting up Virgin Creeks, you know, we're finding a nugget here and there because, you know, there was something going on in, in uh, Illinois last year. I think it was a dirt motorcycle race, mm-hmm. but our live stream was running in a bar in Illinois and all of a sudden we get a, a call and the guy's going to sign up for the race next year, this coming year. But uh, it's interesting because that live feed and the, you know, the technological reach that we have from the website and the other, you know, sources that we use, it reaches people and it absolutely converts into either racer recruitment or, uh, you know, a lifelong fan. Either we find new fans or we find new racers and, and it's, it's, the conversion is trackable. It's remarkable. I love it. You know, I mean, that's an employee that doesn't sleep, doesn't call in sick. <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. All right. Final question, because I always ask this. Uh, this one's probably for Bryce. In one sentence, why Anvil? It provides the best, you know, all-in-one development platform for producing a well-designed and useful web apps. That includes everything from the audience taking a look at the Iron Dog from their phones to, you know, my end and the back, you know, tying in all of our APIs and making sure it's all secure without having to, you know, get too deep in the weeds because Anvil takes care of a lot of the busy work behind the scenes. I'm able to take the time that I have and focus on making sure it looks nice, making sure the data is coming in properly, (laughs) you know, every little small thing. There's so much to do when you're developing a custom app that Anvil takes a lot of the, you know, busy work behind it out, which saves so much time and definitely helps out, you know, the Iron Dog race in general. All right, John Woodbury, Executive Director for the Iron Dog Race, and Bryce Wilbanks of Starfish Enterprise, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Stories from the Workshop. I've been Meredith Luff. I've been talking to John Woodbury and Bryce Wilbanks. And if you want to learn more about what we've been talking about, or see the show notes, or subscribe, you can find us at anvil.works podcast. 
This episode was edited by Baz Richardson, the music is by Signal Smith, and I'll be back next month with more stories from the workshop. See you next time.